During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab because she'd heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she'd been living accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. She said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. No, they said to her, we will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. Forever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and even more if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I left full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabites. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. of God, for the people of God, praise be to God. That was Ruth 1, 
Thank you, Jacob. It's so cool just to meditate and listen to God's word. We don't do it enough. This is a beautiful story, and it's kicking off our series for this month. Uh, The story points ultimately to Christ's story. It starts in Bethlehem, leaves Bethlehem, and comes back. Christ did the same thing. The story is rich in the gospel, God's love and redemption, but the story of Ruth is also full of pain and heartache and hardship and uncertainty. It's a series where our goal as a pastoral team is to just dig into the text and pull out truths. We do it every year. Typically at the end of the year, our goal is just to have a dig deeper series. Let's dive into the word of God. Let's explore it. Let's meditate on it. Let's hear it afresh. Let's learn. And maybe a story that happened 3,000 years ago can speak into our lives right now. Um, so I know uh, we'll try to get you guys out by noon, though, okay? I know there's an announcement. Some of you guys are waiting on some kind of announcement, football playoffs, maybe not. Um, also, props to the decor team. Like, the sanctuary looks awesome. So Christmas tree and poinsettias, it looks great. It is Christmas season. I was asking my wife to pick out a shirt for me this morning. I don't know if some of you guys do that. I recommend it. Um, So I I was asking her and she's like, well, you need to get your Christmas shirts all hung together. So I was like, all right, I got like four or five Christmas shirts. And I was like, what's a Christmas shirt? And she's like, you know the colors. And I'm like, like what colors? And she's like, red and green. And I was like, this one has blue. She's like, it's got a little bit of red in it, so it's Christmas. So I'm like confused at this point. I'm done. I'm sunk. So I get the shirts lined up, and she goes, okay, well, I want this one for pictures, and I want this one, and I want this one. And she's like, you've really got two left. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go with this one. She's like, no, not that one. You got to wear this one. (laughs) So that's an insight into my morning. Um, Also, just being blessed. Um, So it is Christmas. It is an exciting time. I don't know about you guys, I already just feel like, kind of like, I just want to like have some gifts and just sit around like time with family and just meditate on Jesus and just tell my kids the Christmas story and like, can it be New Year's already? But we've got another three weeks. I mean, that's just me. Like I want it to be tomorrow. Um, But back to Ruth, back to this chapter that we've just read. And so just to give you guys a a quick backdrop of what's going on, because context is going to be really important. And in this series, we are going to be digging deeper into some things. I think some of those things are really important that you guys know as the people of God. So when does this happen? It happens in the time of the judges, around 1400 to 1100 BC. Uh, The time of the Judges was interesting. Uh, In Judges 21, 25, it's the last verse in Judges, and it just says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what they wanted. And so this is just, the context is everybody does what they want. Where does this happen? It happens in the tribal region of Judah, but then we hear about this this land called Moab. If you guys want to uh, show the map real quick. If you want to go, go up to the map real quick. Cool. So there's Jerusalem and there's Bethlehem a few miles south, which is Judah. Moab is off on the map over here. 
It's not even in the map because it's not even where the people of God should be. But that is where the Moab is. And what's interesting is that the people of God had to travel through Moab to even get to the promised land. But then we hear in this story in Ruth chapter one that this family is traveling back to Moab, back the way they came, back to Egypt. We'll explore that a little bit now, a little bit more. The author is really unknown. The suggestions are that it's Samuel, but there's also been some suggestions because the text is mainly dealing with women. Because out of the text, there's 55 out of the 85 verses are dialogue, and most of that dialogue is between women. I'm not making any further analysis there. All I'm saying is there's a lot of talking. There has been suggestions, there has been suggestions that the book could have been authored by a woman, even by a woman judge. Some people have put forth Deborah as an author. The author, though, remains unknown. And it's written to this nation of Israel in this turbulent time to remind them of what true faith looks like, to remind them of what loyalty to God looks like, to remind them what that looks like in the midst of suffering and disobedience. When everybody else is doing what they want, a pagan woman, a Moabitess, clings to God and to her relationships and thus demonstrates to an audience that is doing neither what faith looks like. Again, the political circumstances are it's national disunity. There's no king right now. There's 12 tribes. What's going on in society is religious idolatry, moral degeneracy. When you read Judges, there are things that you read that would shock you. We'll talk about one or two of them later. And then there's a failure of leadership. There's no righteous living. There's no righteous action. And in this time of Judges, in this cyclical time over the course of 300 years, God is going to raise up 12 judges six major and six minor, to rescue and redeem his people. This is the backdrop of Ruth. So there's also some pretty cool themes as we jump into it. One of the major themes, if you read this, I just really want to give you guys a homework assignment right now. Read Ruth at some point in this series. It's four chapters. I mean, you can read it again and again and again, once a week, and you'll find God just speaking to you. But one of the major themes is the hiddenness of God because God's not a major player in Ruth. He doesn't act. He's very passive. He's very hidden. In fact, he's blamed more for things, whether they're good and bad. So we see the hiddenness of God. And it works in, in, in just a mysterious way, but it reveals his ultimate purpose for his people. Relationship and redemption. We also hit across another theme, covenant unfaithfulness. In short, this just translates as God's people are idiots. We 
are idiots. The people and the judges were idiots. Knowing the law, knowing what is right, knowing what is good and not doing it. As a result, they, they worshiped the gods that they set up for themselves. And they became enslaved to other people and other things. What's awesome, though, is the remedy that we begin to see, a theme that we begin to see play out in Ruth is faithfulness. And we're going to see that through several different characters. And I can't give away too much. And then redemption. I can't give this one away either. We're going to have to track alongside this book for the next three weeks. But there's also some literary beauty to this story. The first is foils. And if you guys are hearing about foils, we're not talking about Reynolds rap and we're not talking about math. Some of you guys like those engineers, math. You guys know what a foil is in math. I don't know what that is. All I got is English for you, okay? But foils is this idea of a character is mirrored by another character in their opposite, their difference. And this contrast we're gonna see again and again and again. Because what God is trying to do is he's trying to give his people a contrast they can see clearly what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Another thing of, of just literary beauty is this whole idea of foreshadowing. Every chapter, the author is going to foreshadow things that are going to happen in subsequent chapters. And then what's even more beautiful about this book is the author, who we know ultimately is the Spirit of God, is foreshadowing redemption and he's foreshadowing Christ. I shared with you guys a little bit about the time of Judges. There's a, um, Old Testament scholars have, have labeled this as a kind of a time of cycle of sin. Cycle of sin. You guys can pull that up. So the cycle of sin is Israel gets in the promised land and they're serving the Lord. They, they're conquering parts of the promised land. They're worshiping him. And then they just kind of fall into sin and idolatry. They forget the words of the law. They start worshiping other gods. They start doing whatever they want to do. Then they become enslaved to other people so that even their very harvest, it's the promised land. It's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. Their very harvest are taken by others. They're enslaved and they come to a point of year after year of year of this happening and the people finally get it that they need to cry out to God and stop sinning. And they cry out to God and God who is faithful in love, rich in mercy, abounding in compassion, raises up a judge for them to deliver them from their enemies and judge rightly among them. Israel is delivered and the land has rest. People have rest. I mean, that's just, in our culture right now, that's just an exciting word. Doesn't it excite each one of you? Doesn't your heartbeat quicken when you hear about having rest? I got small children at home. I don't know what that word means. I got finals and exams coming up. I don't know what that word means. But don't you begin to be excited about the possibility of rest? And this is what Judges says, when God delivers his people, there is rest and they serve the Lord. But then what happens? They forget 
and they turn away and they get caught in the same cycle of sin, generation after generation. And some, some of you guys might not be connecting to this whole cyclical thing, right? But something that, that you might connect with is the rebound effect. You all know what I'm talking about in relationships with men and women. You're in this great relationship and it's going great. And then all of a sudden you get dumped and it's horrible, but you're good. You're single. You're going to make it. And then this great guy, this great girl comes along and you're going to get in another great relationship. And all of a sudden there's this rebound effect that happens over and over and over again. This is what's happening to the people. There's this rebound effect that they're experiencing and that they're living in. We do come also to grip with some textual problems for the book of Ruth. Like when the heck was this story written? Like 1400 to 1100 is like the dark ages of Israel. I mean, it's the dark ages of, of ancient history for that matter. We don't really know anything. Not a whole lot was written. And so there's been some people who said, hey, this maybe was written like during the time David was king, kind of to, to prop up his royal rule and, and to give a genealogy for him. It provides legitimacy to him. Another group of scholars say, hey, this is actually not written during the time of David. It's actually written after Israelite. Israelites come back from Babylon. They're in the time of exile. And what's happening actually is a lot of hardcore nationalists, we might call them alt-right Israelites, are saying, let's get rid of all the foreign people among us. And this book is actually written to them to help soften their national and spiritual zeal so that they realize that there's beauty with immigrants. There's beauty with love and compassion and accepting the foreigners like Ruth. There's legitimacy. They become the people of God as well. And I just think both of those things, when I look at that, both those things have, have one thing in common. The greatest explanation around them centers on man. And when we read scripture, the greatest explanation of scripture can never center around us. If it does, we're reading the wrong Bible and we're interpreting the wrong things. When we read scripture, the greatest explanation of things should always center around God. And so we come to the third interpretation that it really was written sometime during the life of Samuel. And then it has rich theological implications for the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel who are on the cusp of receiving a king but also need to be reminded of their story, who also need to be reminded of how to love foreigners, who also need to be reminded of their ultimate covenant with a relational and faithful God. So Ruth 1, 1 through 5, let's pull out some things. Let's dig deep and pull out some things. So again, if you have Ruth, your Bible, turn over to Ruth, portable electronic device, your smartphone, whatever you got.
Again, it might be hard to find. It's only like three pages, three or four pages long in your Bible. It's a beautiful short story. It's right after Judges and it's before First and Second Samuel. And so we see in Ruth 1, 1 through 5, that there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. And in the ancient times, especially in the nation of Israel, famine was equated to a covenant curse. It was equated to maybe that there is displeasure on that God is looking at his people and he is displeased and he is rebuking and punishing and disciplining them. There's a famine in Bethlehem, which is a foil, and it doesn't make any sense because Bethlehem means the house of bread, the house where people go to be fed. And yet in Bethlehem, there's a house of bread, but it is empty. There's a famine in the land. And so Elimelech, again, his name means my God is king, but yet he takes his family from Bethlehem, the house of bread, from the promised land, from his tribal allotment, and he takes them to a pagan nation. He takes them to Moab. His God isn't his king. He is his king. Judges 21, 25, he does whatever he wants. He's a man of God masquerading himself to do whatever he wants. He takes his family there. And Moab, if you'll remember, Moab in Genesis 19 is, it, it it's becomes a nation after the incestuous relationships that it has among Lot's daughters. And then it devises for itself false gods that glory in practice worshiping child sacrifice. This is the land that this godly man is taking his family, all because the economic outlook over there looks way better than his economic outlook here. So we're introduced to more names. Naomi. Naomi is sweet and pleasant. This is what her names mean. She's a sweet and pleasant to behold, a sweet and pleasant personality. Everybody loves Naomi. And then we get to their children, Malon and Kilion. And this is, if you're reading this, the names doesn't make sense because when you start understanding what the Hebrew names are, it means like cancer and plague, like death and dying are their names. And this is the first indication maybe that something is wrong when you name your children death and dying. And we're gonna meet Ruth later on. And Ruth's name, full to overflowing, or woman friend. We'll see how this carries out through the story, but full to overflowing, how interesting is that you have to go to a pagan country and you're gonna find a woman that is full to overflowing and a woman that is gonna be a friend. And so guys, let me just speak to you guys real quick. Don't be like a Limelech. Don't be like Elimelech. One of the foremost things that you should be thinking about in your mind as you make decisions is how does this affect the kingdom of God and the people of God? Because where you take your family is going to affect that as well. Now, some people might 
be critical and say, hey, Andrew, you're being really tough on Elimelech here. Like, we'll get to the reason why I'm being a little tough later on. There's a, there's a good reason, but I think the first reason, period, is that he decides to take his family out of the promised land to a pagan nation. Guys, are, are, are there things that you're doing where you're taking your family out of the will of God, the people of God, the purposes of God, so you can benefit somehow? And I would just caution you that that, that might be where you need to stop and evaluate your relationship with God. All right, the story is going to center on Naomi, but what's really interesting, the whole story is going to center on Naomi. And it's great. Naomi, though, is, is predominantly passive in this. She's predominantly passive. Forces are acting outside of her. If there's one character that I want you guys to connect with, whether you're a girl or a dude, you need to connect with Naomi. She's going to represent Israel for the remainder of the story. And so they go to Moab and, and Elimelech dies. His children die. This is not a pleasant story. This is not a sweet story. But verse six, it says that God provides for his people. So what does Naomi decide to do? She decides to turn back. And in Hebrew, this word is shub. And, and it happens 15 times in the story, 12 times just in chapter one. She decides to turn back to the promised land, to turn back to God, to turn back to the house of bread. It's interesting, fullness versus famine is this theme that we're introduced to. Fullness versus famine. Judges 17 through 21 provide an interesting story of what's happened in Bethlehem. Maybe that's a result of this famine. There was a Levite, a priest, who opened his own shrine to a false god in Bethlehem. There's another Levite and priest who had a concubine on the side in Bethlehem. One that he even purportedly allowed to be gang raped by the people in Bethlehem. And so there's been a famine in Bethlehem for very good reasons. Sometimes the sin that we have as people is going to have consequences. But for whatever reason, those consequences have stopped. And Naomi turns back to Bethlehem. Verses 11 through 13, they're weeping and they're crying. And she's kind of like, hey, daughters, we're done. Like, this has been a horrible last 10 years. The last 10 years have sucked. Go back and find security and love from husbands. I can't give them to you. Go back to your gods. I think what's cool here is that we see that even though all this tragedy has happened, Naomi has been living a covenant life, loyal and honorable to God. Both Ruth and Orpah are familiar with the God of Israel. They know who he is. And they're weeping. But in verse 13, we really get to what's going on here. Naomi blames God for her every misfortune. 
I don't know about you guys sometimes, but when bad things happen, isn't it easy to blame God? Isn't it easy to kind of just shake our fist at the deity we don't see? He's the cause of our trouble. He made this happen. Why did he allow this to happen to me or to us? God remains silent. God remains silent. Then we get to Ruth and Orpah. And we get to this, these characters. We don't know what Orpah's name really means. It's kind of confusing. I'm not sure. I like to just switch some letters around and call her Oprah. That might help for some of you. That might help for some of you. Maybe not. But we see Ruth it very shortly is going to make this faithful declaration. She's courageous. She's a female foreigner who grasps on to what it looks like to worship God and to be a part of the people of God. In the time of judges, when there is no male leadership, we get a picture of what godly, righteous living looks like, again, from a female pagan foreigner who's going to make the decision to follow God for the rest of her life. And then we have Oprah. She just turns back. Again, we talked about turning back, right? It happens 12 times, this word. And it means that there's a lot of vacillation going on. There's a lot of confusion. And she wanted to go and she was weeping and then she turned back. And maybe that's what our relationships with God look like sometimes. Maybe it's because God is not at the center. Maybe it looks a lot like what Oprah really is about. Oprah's really about all the next fads. And it says that she turns back to her God's at the end of the day. Not the one true God, but the gods. But what's interesting about this is Naomi also blesses her. If we could understand that as a church, that there are people who don't believe in the one true God and they're gonna turn away but our role as the church is not to judge or condemn or defeat them politically, but maybe our job is to bless them. Let's move on to Ruth's confession. So Ruth's confession of faith, very powerful. Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you. This is chapter one, verse 16. Do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and even more if anything but death separates you and me. Have you guys said that to God? Have you said that to the people of God? This is what, Ruth understood as salvation. It's a common oath formula. And what's interesting too is that she confesses belief in Yahweh, the one true God. It's a common oath formula and it's a common oath formula from, from weddings, from marriages. No, Ruth isn't marrying Naomi, but it's the same Aspect. It's the same, I'm going to tie myself with you in a covenant fashion. 
The original word there is cling. I'm going to cling to you. Some of you guys might have shared those same words in your wedding vows. We see them in Genesis 2 when a man is supposed to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. This is the kind of clinging we see. And it's very different to the word used in, in Ruth chapter 1 about Elimelech's sons who took foreign wives. This is why I have such a, this is why I'm a, kind of I got a bad rap against Elimelech. There's examples over and over again of men in the Bible who made sure that their sons had wives, godly wives. But Elimelech did not. He allowed his sons to marry foreign wives. And take, take is used several different times in the Old Testament. And most oftentimes, take is referred to as the forceful marriage. If we want to use a harder word, we can, we can even call it, we'll rape you and then we'll marry you. This is what take means. But we see something completely different with cling. We see something beautiful with cling. We see how marriage was intended. When we go back to Genesis 2, and a man and woman were meant to cling together. I think what's sad is we're seeing in our political circles, we're seeing in our influential circles, we're seeing in our celebrity circles this idea of take. I can take what I want, especially when it comes to sexuality. That is not God's design or God's intent. There's no taking. There's clinging. This is what the gospel is like. Christ clung on a cross for us. This is the kind of marriage that Christ has with us. This is the kind of statement that Ruth makes to Naomi. This is the kind of statement that Christ makes to us. Ruth dismisses the logic to Naomi and exemplifies love and loyalty. What's weird is Naomi is silent. I mean, we've talked about a lot of dialogue. Two-thirds of Ruth is dialogue, but we don't get anything from Naomi. Like, thanks, Ruth, that means a lot. <laughs> or I'm excited. Why is she silent? We don't know. Maybe she's going to return home and there's going to be a reminder of all she lost. Maybe she's going to return home and there's gonna, she's going to have a foreign-hated woman at her side She's going to be even more ostracized. We don't know. She's going to return home with a burden. All we know is that she's going to go home. Going back to Ruth, I think what's powerful about Ruth's oath, what's powerful about her confession, is she's not professing a momentary feeling or making a safe bet. She's making a commitment to cling to God, Naomi's God, for the rest of her life. And not just her God, but to Naomi, to God's people. No matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the hardship, no matter the pain, no matter the uncertainty. It's not patricate Christianity. It's not playing games. It's not consumer Christianity. It's all in. Let's wrap up. So Naomi comes back. 
She walks down a road that probably a hundred years ago, her people walked down with beautiful promise. They were going into the promised land, but she walks down this road this time, coming back, and she is walking down this road depressed, feeling alone, like the hand of God has turned against her. And she gets in the town and hasn't seen anybody in 10 years. I mean, there's a great movie right there. Hasn't seen anybody in 10 years. And the people of the town, the women of the town are excited to meet her. Can this be Naomi? And she just says, hey, my name's not Naomi anymore. I've gone from sweet and pleasant to bitter. My name is now Mara. Um, one thing I'm encouraged about Naomi is she's pretty brutally honest. It's good. It's good. But that honesty is going to lead her into a depression. And I think sometimes when we look at our lives, if we're brutally honest, sometimes we can get depressed as well. And then we have things to turn to, right? We can medicate that, which will help sometimes, and is even in some cases a very good thing and a right thing to do. Then we have something that is different, something that just causes us to embrace culture and marry culture. You see, when we're depressed, we're not feeling good about it, we entertain ourselves. We escape. The last thing that I think is going to be so encouraging, again, foreshadowing. Let's foreshadow a little bit. Is that sometimes when we're depressed, we need to stop and start thinking, not about our lives, but about God. And Naomi is going to do that in the next chapter. You're going to see Naomi, a depressed woman, start to come alive on the inside because she starts thinking about God and the things of God. She starts recalling the law and she becomes excited about some potential things that are happening. But right now she's depressed because the law and God are the last things on her mind because in her mind, God has dealt unfaithfully and unfairly to her. She is at the center of the story when she should be at the outside of the story asking God what he's going to do because God is always at the center of the story. We're going to skip, um, skip over the Exodus 15 reference. Um, I'd love to have like another 10 minutes with you guys. But let's go right to Hebrews 12, 15. Some great truth for us. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. Don't allow bitterness to spring up to your lives. You will defile many. Can you imagine possibly what would happen if Naomi, instead of embracing bitterness, actually embraced her other daughter-in-law, Orpah? Would Orpah be saved now? I don't know. But Naomi embraced bitterness and it defiled Orpah. Church, 
We can't embrace bitterness. It's a poison and it defiles. The answer is in the song that we sang earlier, joy. So foreshadowing, again, hope. It's harvest time in Bethlehem. It is harvest time in Bethlehem. And we're going to track through some of the things regarding the harvest, but not today. But harvest has always been this exciting time for the people of God because they're celebrating what God has done for them. In fact, the ministry and life of Jesus revolves around the feast of Israel, which revolves around the harvest. The famine is is gone and God is blessing his people. Bethlehem is a town pregnant with meaning. Pregnant with meaning. I'm gonna go ahead and pray us out. Father, I thank you so much for this time, Lord. You're a, a faithful, good, awesome God. Forgiving all of our wrongdoing. Lord, I pray today, God, that we would, we would get ourselves out of the center of the story and we would put Christ at the center of the story. We would put your word at the center of the story. Lord, I pray for my life and the life of your people, the life of this flock, that we would would get bitterness out of our lives, out of our marriages, out of our parenting, out of our relationships, so that we could see the grace of God. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray this in your name. Amen.